hey, we're not going to be able to do anything else. Uh, we're not going to treat you any further. You've got about a week left to live, and, and this is kind of where it's at. And so, like I said earlier, Steve is a follower of Jesus. He, he comes to Next, comes to Redemption Chapel, and so as he hears this news, he goes up to Alex and says, hey, can you guys pray for me tonight at Next? And Alex does like a little pivot, and what we, what we did is we'd pray over Steve tonight, lay hands on him, and ask that God would do a miracle, that God would heal him. And then something crazy happens. The next day, Steve's symptoms, all of his symptoms from cancer are gone. He outlives that week, goes to his doctors, and they run all these tests to try to figure out what's going on. All the scans come back clear. There's no more tumors. There's no more cancer. And his doctors look at him and say, hey, Steve, we can't explain this. We don't know how this has happened, but your cancer's gone. It's a miracle. We, don't, we cannot explain what happened. And so my, my question for you is, what would you do? What would your response be to that? And I hope it would be, man, this is crazy. I need to tell everyone. I can't believe this happened. You guys remember Steve from next? He had cancer and we prayed over him and God healed him. It was amazing. It was a miracle. His doctors can't explain it. Do you, do you see what God did? I hope that would be your response. And I think in that, let's, let's say you shared uh, with your friend who isn't a believer, and, I, and I'm not saying just maybe a, an atheist, but somebody who is act, act, actively against religion. They think religion is a problem in our society. They love Richard Dawkins. Um, what would their response be to that story that you shared about Steve? I think it'd probably be something like, hey, you know, I know you believe that. I know prayer's important to you, but that, that wasn't a miracle, Right, like his doctors probably made a mistake. They misdiagnosed him. Something else is going on, but it wasn't a supernatural cure, or or something like if if science was a little bit more advanced, we we might we can't explain it now, but in ten years from now, we'll know we'll know why, what caused this or how this happened. But it wasn't a miracle. And so, part of my question for you guys is, what causes those two different responses and people to the same event? same experience. And I think uh, the, one of the biggest overarching things is worldview. It's a worldview. They have a totally different worldview perspective. You and your friend who is an atheist against religion. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning is uh, worldview and evangelism and how worldview impacts how we should share our faith. And so kind of the first thing I want you guys to take away today is that everyone actually has a worldview, all right? It's very simple, but everyone has a worldview. Everyone you've ever met, everyone you've ever come in contact with, you do, you have a worldview. And I want to define worldview this way. Uh, this is from Ronald Nash. He's a philosopher, but he says it uh, this way. A worldview is a conceptual scheme by which we consciously or unconsciously judge or interpret reality, okay? That's a big, heady definition, all right? We don't usually talk like that, but a simpler way to say this is your worldview is how you view the world, how you determine what is true, how you see actions and interpret events uh, and determine what actually happened, what's true, and how we should live because of it. Uh, I like to define worldview as, um, as glasses that people wear. 
So I want you to picture everyone you've ever met, uh, yourself included, everyone that's ever existed with glasses on. And the lens in those glasses are, are their worldview. And it determines how they see things. And sometimes because of their worldview, it makes them not see things, right? Glasses can be tinted. It can make things harder to see. Uh, you can almost view them as, at times, a funhouse mirror where it distorts reality based on what we believe. And so some things look bigger, some things look smaller, and it affects how we view what is true, our purpose, our reality. But everyone has a worldview. And part of this, and, and this is kind of a, a, an argument we believe as Christians is, and I think everyone holds to this, that there's a right worldview. Like there is, there is a reality to our world most people think their worldview is the right one, right? But there, there is, in all reality, a right worldview. A glasses that you can have on that you see what is true and how the world actually is. And, and so as Christians, part of that is we have a worldview and we should have a worldview that is in line with our faith. And, and what that means is that it's, it's based on the reality that, of what we believe about the gospel and what Jesus has done for us his death and re resurrection and all that goes along with that. And what God's word actually says in Romans 12, verses one and two, is that he says that God renews our mind and as we become a follower of Jesus, he shapes our worldview. Let me, let me read that passage for us now. It says this. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So there, there's kind of a con conditional thing that happens here in Romans 1 and 2. It says that because of what Jesus has done for us, we need to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That what we've been called to do as followers of Jesus is to live for him and no longer live for ourselves. But what this passage says is if we do that, part of what will happen inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit is we won't be transformed to the world. We won't view the world how the world does, our culture does, American ideals do, but we will begin to view the world. Our minds will be renewed and be like God's and how he sees the world. It's really cool. If you look at the bottom of verse two, it says, he'll renew our mind and, so that we may discern what the will of God is, what's good, acceptable, perfect. That's huge. And what God's word promises you is as you pursue God, he will do that in you. Uh, but what we've also seen, and I think you guys would agree with that, most people don't have that, that worldview. Most people you come across don't have that worldview. And this is actually a quote from um, Barna Poles and George Barna, but this is what he says about worldview in America. Seven out of 10 U.S. adults call themselves Christians, and yet only six of 100 actually have a biblical worldview. So the question is, what, does the rest, what do the rest of Americans believe? In other words, the dominant worldview in America, and really the West today, is, is syncretism which means a little bit of that, a little bit of this, blended into a worldview that's custom made by each person. With such a worldview, there's no ultimate authority and truth is determined by whatever seems right to each person. All right, and so just even to break down this quote, seven of 10 people in America still in some way claim to be Christians. 
If you inter- interact with 10 people, you know that's not true, right? 70% of Americans aren't followers of Jesus. Um, and what proves that in a lot of ways in their poll is six out of 100 people have an actual Christian worldview, which means they live their life based on the fact that Jesus has died for them, that he's God, that he is the only way to be forgiven uh, of our sins, They live in a way that they think that the Bible is their ultimate authority, that God's given us a purpose, a morality, an ethic, a way to live, and that shapes how they view the world. Only six of 100 people do that. And so the reality is, in our country, and the most people that you interact with, our worldview isn't based on that. It's based on, the word they use is syncretism, which means we pick and choose what we want to believe based on our experience, what feels good, and what benefits us. Now, that's where you get the phrase, hey, you know, hey, that's good for you. That can be your truth, but uh, that's not true for me, right? We have, we've, we've kind of, as a culture, gotten rid of objective truth, and now truth can be subjective. I get to choose who my God is, what is good, what is uh, my life purpose, even if it contradicts. All right, a big thing in American worldview right now is I can pick and choose and it doesn't matter if what I believe lines up is logical or consistent, okay? There's a, a really good book called Effective Intercultural Evangelism. It's by Moon and Simon. And in that, they talk about four worldviews. Uh, I'm, I'm only gonna talk about two of them and guys, what we're talking about with worldview is a, a huge glossing over. I'm just trying to give you kind of an idea of, of what, what this means. But uh, one of the main worldviews that is blended together is guilt and justice worldview and an honor-shame worldview. What American uh, worldview really has been based on for a long time is guilt and justice. Uh, this is a very individual worldview where we say, uh, I individually determine what's right and wrong and what I'm trying to live for is for what's good, what's fair, what's just and I'm trying to avoid being guilty. And the morality of that guilt and justice worldview in America has really been based on Judeo-Christian morality for the most part, right? Not tied to actual belief in Jesus but tied to the morality of the Bible at times. We're shifting away from that We still have some of that. We're still very individualistic as a society, but we're bringing in some of this honor-shame culture as well. And what highlights that is you become more of a communal worldview, and we base what we do not based on what actually we believe is right or wrong, but we base it on what will give us honor or what will give us shame. So you might not think something is true or good, but you will do it at times in in our culture if... It gives you honor and it avoids you getting shame. This, uh, I, I like to think this is connected a lot to social media, the internet, cell phones, apps, all of that stuff because you're, at times we're afraid to say, I believe this, and then a thousand people on social media be like, you're an idiot, you're a bigot, I can't believe you believe that. Right? Very uh, a, a big part of what our culture is. So think about it this way, cancel culture in America Uh, it it didn't exist 30 years ago, right? It's a shift in worldview. That's a good example of that, right? Now we we really are afraid. I don't want to say that even if I believe it because it will give me shame. You might actually experience this as a believer at times. So you might say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I, I have a biblical worldview for the most part, but there's probably things in scripture that you would say, I don't believe that. 
I don't want to live that out or I don't want to say that in front of my friends because it will, it will get me shamed. They'll call me a bigot. They'll think these things about me, right? That's, that's an example of how probably you practically experience that. So again, it's a synchronistic um, uh, worldview, right? We're, we're meshing things together based on experience, based on kind of those honor, shame, guilt, justice worldviews. And people get to pick and choose what they believe and how they live that out. Okay. That's kind of, in general, where I think America's at in worldviews. And the reality is every single one of your friends, your coworkers, your unbelieving acquaintances, they have a slightly different worldview because of that. And so what I wanted you to do, what I want to challenge you is, I want you to think about who those people are. Who are your unbelieving friends, family, acquaintances? I want you to picture their faces. I want you to say their names in your head. Um, and I want you to actually think about what do they believe? Because part of this and part of worldview is you have to know people well enough and engage with them well enough, ask good enough questions that you actually know what they believe. Because the reality is what people believe and their worldview impacts how you do evangelism. Think back to that first story I started with. One of the biggest things that impacted their, their response to a miracle and what Jesus has done is based on their starting point and their belief. And a lot of times, and I'm sure you probably heard some of this the last few weeks, um, evangelism at times is, is it's weeding. It's getting rid of uh, blocks that are preventing people from actually engaging with Jesus and things that are preventing them from taking it seriously or, or actually engaging with what Jesus has done for them. So I like to think about dealing with worldviews, asking good questions in evangelism like gardening. I'm, I'm trying to pull away weeds so people can actually engage with Jesus and God can plant a seed and, and, and bring them into a relationship with himself, okay? So that's our first point. Everyone has a worldview. And this is our second one. You actually, actually have to act like everyone has a worldview. All right, it's really simple, right? You actually have to, you have to know everyone has a worldview, but then you have to actually act on it. It needs to change your actions. I've heard this said before, and I think it's funny, so I want to share it with you. Uh, Worldviews are a lot like belly buttons. Everyone has one, but we don't talk about it very often, right? And it's probably good. It'd be really weird if you talked about people's belly buttons. But it, it is like a funny thing. Everyone has one, and you never think about it. Never talk about it. But it's the same is true for worldviews. And if we're going to share our faith well, we need to engage well enough to know what other people believe. And I think scripture calls us that to that as well. I want to read for us uh, second, uh, 1 Peter three fifteen through 17. This is what it says. Um, what am I on? Hold on a second. Three, there we go. That was good. That was quick. Um, let's see here. Uh, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. So there are three, there's three parts of this that I want you to take away as you think about worldview and evangelism. First, we all always need to be prepared to, prepared to make a defense. Part of that is knowing what you believe. Part of that's knowing the gospel, what Jesus has done for you, but, but it's knowing what you believe. The second part of that 
is are you engaging with your friends, your acquaintances well enough to know what they believe and what their objections are to faith and to your worldview and what you believe about the world based on what God has done and what scripture says. So part of making defense is you actually have to know what other people believe as well. The second part of this passage, it says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. So again, that's being able to say, hey, this is what Jesus has done. This is the hope that I have. But as you interact with other people's worldview, and part of what Christianity believes is we believe that it's the right worldview. Like this is reality of our world, that Jesus has saved us. This is the reality of what's happened. And so what we're saying as we interact with people is we're trying to show them, hey, I think in some way your worldview falls short, that it doesn't answer the question adequately or you're being inconsistent and what I'm trying to show you is actually Jesus offers a better hope you're trying to be compassionate you're trying to care for people but actually what you're saying falls short and what Jesus offers is better you're trying to give the hope of Jesus and why you believe what you believe and lastly it says do so with gentleness and respect you don't win people to eternity in a relationship with God by being a jerk and you can't argue people into heaven. We're trying to be winsome. We're trying to actually care about people enough to interact with what they believe, their objections, and, and, uh, and all of their concerns as well. So I'm not always good at this. This isn't like my wheelhouse. But I want to give you an example of, of uh, a time that I think this went well in my life. Um, and really what I'm talking about when I'm saying engage with people, get to know them, and ask big uh, life questions of them to actually get them to share what they believe and why. So um, this was a while ago, but when I lived in Kaiga Falls, this was probably 2016, maybe, uh, 2017. Uh, me and my wife were living there, and we realized three girls that we went to high school with were living really close to us. They weren't followers of Jesus. We were trying to just engage with them, care for them well, and also in the hopes of sharing Jesus with them. And so what we found out is that they love The Bachelor. Does anybody else here like The Bachelor? You, you can be, you can, you know, oh, you guys are so, so timid and embarrassed of it. It's okay, Ethan, it's, it's fine. So I want to encourage you guys, if you like The Bachelor, you can actually use The Bachelor for evangelism. So think about this, guys. So what we ended up doing, this was really fun. Um, we just were like, these girls are already watching it uh, every week. And so what we did is we just invited them over to our house. It was me and three, four girls, one of them and my wife. So it wasn't super fun, but um, we watched The Bachelor together, ate fun snacks. And what I really enjoyed about it is it brought up really big questions of the world and life because we were talking about relationships, marriage. And so as things happened in the show, it gave me a chance to just be like, hey, like, why do you want a guy to do that in a relationship? Or what do you want marriage to be like? What do you think marriage should be like? Why is that? And so it just gave me a chance to ask these bigger questions and to get these girls to actually think about things that maybe they haven't before and go a little bit deeper in what we believe and why. The best conversation we had, and this isn't a political thing at all, but it happened right around when um, Donald Trump was elected. And at the time, unfortunately, locally, uh, an unarmed African-American man was shot by the police. And we were having a conversation while we were watching The Bachelor, and they were really upset about it. Um, and I said, hey, guys, like, I 100% agree with you. 
So take, take, take that into account. But I want you to answer, why do you think this black guy has worth and value? Why is it bad that this happened? I, trust me, I agree with you, but why? And it was just starting this bigger question of, hey, why do you believe what you say you do? Why do people have worth and value? And what it got to in their mind was, uh, their worldview was saying people have worth and value based on what they do. And what I was able to walk through with them is like, hey, I actually think that's inconsistent, right? If this person was a criminal, it wouldn't be good. You wouldn't be rejoicing that they were shot. That's not a good thing. So why do people actually have worth and value? And it gave me a really cool opportunity to just actually walk them through what Christians believe, that we believe that people have worth and value that's innate, that can't be taken away because people are made in the image of God. So no matter how good you are or how bad you are or how much you fail, people have worth and value and we need to treat them with dignity and honor. And so it's just a a practical example of how do you engage with what people believe enough to walk them through? Is their worldview consistent? And does it actually answer the big questions of life? Okay, I know that's not all encompassing, but I wanted to at least give you an example of what that looks like. I want to read uh, one more passage for us here as we, as we start to wrap up. But it's 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. And it says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new, new creation. The old, is, um, the old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. Uh, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And why I want to reiterate this is this is not an academic exercise. So I need you to hear that. Evangelism, worldview, none of this matters if you're just like, man, I I gotta learn more and just view it as an academic exercise. God is the author of salvation. And so if we really want to reach our friends, if we want to care for people well and give them the hope of Jesus, we need to be praying. We need to be on our knees, praying, asking God to give us the words to say, to soften people's hearts, to enable them to believe because God saves people. And he does. And what's really crazy about this passage is that he's given us as his people the ministry of reconciliation which means that God has made you his ambassador. He has promised he will use you to save people and bring them into a new relationship with God. And so that means we need to depend on him, but it should excite us and be like, man, I need to have these big questions. I need to have these awesome conversations. I need to care about my friends, my acquaintances enough to actually ask them what they believe about life so that I can give them the hope of Jesus because God will bring them to relationship with himself. God promises us that he's doing that in people's lives. Just want to close with a couple just practical application here. Oh, you got it? Okay. Um, what I want, uh, the first one here is to get to know people and ask questions. I know that's simple. I've said it the whole time. Just get to know people and ask questions. And the, kind of the big, que- these are the type of questions I want you to ask. So what's wrong with the world and what's, what's the solution? How do we determine truth, morality, ethics? How do we know that? Uh, lastly, uh, what is our purpose? Everybody has to have an answer to that. And a lot of times when we share our faith, we, have, we think that, 
oh man, the burden of proof's on me. I need to convince people why Jesus is, is it, that it, it's the only thing that makes sense. But in reality, everyone has a worldview and the burden of proof is on them as well of why what they believe is true and a better answer to these questions. And so don't feel like you have to know all the answers. They have to prove that the, the purpose for life is consistent that they say they have or how they get their ethics and morality is consistent or what's wrong with the world and what's the solution. Everyone, sh- they, they might not have thought about it, but everyone needs to have an answer to those questions. And just to even give you examples, like there's some people that would say, hey, poverty education, those are the biggest problems with, with the world. If we fix those things, the world will be better. But part of what, as you engage with these things, is, is even saying, hey, will that really fix the world? All you'd have to do is show somebody with a PhD that's a murderer and say, it doesn't fix it. There's still issues going on. Or you'd show a billionaire who's, who commits sexual assault and you'd say, okay, that's not, that's not the solution. I don't think you've, you've thought through all of what you say you believe. And so that's kind of where these questions go and you're able to engage with why do you believe what you believe? What's actually a better hope? And we believe that's Jesus. Um, and then lastly here, just a reminder, Jesus saves he, uh, we are his ambassadors. So are we relying on him? Are we praying? Are we believing and having com- uh, conversations in confidence that God is going to move in people's life and draw them to himself? All right, so let me, let me pray for us and then uh, we'll break for small groups. All right, let me pray. God, thank you so much for tonight. I pray that you would, I pray that you would move uh, in our conversations and um, in our relationships. God, I just, I pray that this wouldn't be an academic thing, that we wouldn't just try to learn more, have more answers to questions, even though that's good. But Lord, I pray that we'd be dependent on you. I pray that we we would um, be prayerful over our friends, our family, and and ask you to move and and listen to your spirit and and ask you to give us the words to say and actually engage well and, uh, and, and, not do it superficially and not get caught up in the busyness of life, but actually care about people coming to know you. I pray that for myself. I pray that for all of us, Lord, that you would use us as your ambassadors, that it wouldn't just be a text we look at in scripture and say, oh man, that's pretty cool. But God, that that we would say, no, that's actually true, that God, you want to use me and I want to be faithful to the opportunity you give me. And I pray that you do that in all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.